Well, good evening. I don't know about you all, but we had a really busy week uh, this, uh, this past week. And one of the things that we did this week, on Friday and Saturdays, we had a garage sale, a yard sale. And if you've ever done one of these, you have a ton of stuff that you want to move. And so you have to price it right so it has to, to move. And so we started off on Friday, and we did pretty good on Friday. And then we got into Saturday, and we were going to uh, be here at the church on uh, Saturday afternoon for Beth Lee's uh, memorial service. So we needed to kind of expedite things on, on uh, Saturday. So every time somebody would come up, uh, Darlene would say, I'm cutting prices. And she would, she would say that. And as I, was, as I was thinking, as people were taking these things and hauling them out of our, our yard, it made me think of uh, Hebrews 10.34. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. And that's how, that's how I felt yesterday. I felt like we were plundered, but that's what happened. Okay. All right, so tonight, um, we're not doing the book of Galatians. We, um, I'm substituting for someone, and so we're going to be looking at the book of Habakkuk. So if you're going, gosh, I don't even know where that book is. This is how you get to the book of Habakkuk. You get, to the, you get to the very end of the Old Testament, and you'll be in Malachi. And then you go one book past, I mean, forward of that, and you get to uh, Zechariah, and then you get to Haggai, then you get to Zephaniah, and then you'll be in Habakkuk, okay? This, this prophecy that we're going to look at tonight in the book of Habakkuk is about 2,600 years old. It's 2,600 years old, and it has a message that is still very applicable to us in 2023. The book of Habakkuk is, consists of a series of conversations that Habakkuk has with God that wrestle with the issue of God's justice. Now, one of the wonderful things about getting to preach on Sunday night is usually on, on Monday, um, Jonathan sends an email to us and saying, hey, what what are you preaching on so we can pick the songs? And, and uh, he's really good at picking the songs, and the songs he picked tonight were really good. They really support the text that we're going to, to look at tonight. Uh, but we're going to be uh, looking at, we're primarily going to be in chapter one. We're not going to have any slides tonight. And, uh, but the primary text that we're going to look at, that I'm going to read, that chapter one's going to support, is found in Habakkuk chapter two, verses one through four. So if you could follow me along as I, as I read this. Now, this text describes Habakkuk's action after he prays in chapter 1. He prays in chapter 1, and what we see in chapter 2, which is our primary text, is how God answers Habakkuk's prayer. So starting at verse 1, chapter 2. I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the watchtower, and I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and how I may reply when I am reprimanded. Then the Lord answered me and said, write down the vision and describe it clearly on the tablets so that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hurries towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it delays, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay long. And then specifically, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous one will live by faith. So please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, 
The scripture that we're going to look at tonight deals with your justice, and besides dealing with your justice, it deals with affliction. And I pray, Father, as we read this, uh, as we go through this text tonight, that we can see how to apply this in our hearts, and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we study this tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the book of Habakkuk is probably one that most of us are not familiar with. And I remember after I became a Christian about 50 years ago, they had these chick publications. Have you ever been familiar with them? They're little chick publications. And I remember opening one and there was uh, the prophet Habakkuk and then there was a Christian who had just died and gone to heaven. And uh, the Christian says to, the, to Habakkuk, says, I didn't even know that you wrote a book of the Bible. And so you can, so Habakkuk is one of these books that we really don't look at, but there's a very important conversation that, uh, that we're going to see tonight as we go through it. When we read the, the book of Habakkuk, the timeline is somewhere around 600 to 605 BC. And Jehoiakim is the king of Judah, and Judah is the only kingdom that's left. The kingdom of Israel, the 10 tribes, had been conquered over 100 years earlier by Assyria, and Jeho- uh, Jehoiakim's father was Josiah, and Josiah was the one who led the covenant renewal about 20 years earlier. And despite that covenant renewal, his son Jehoiakim is described in 2 Kings as what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And when it says fathers, he's referring to the evil kings of Judah, like uh, Manasseh, and not really his father Josiah. But Jehoiakim's character was particularly odious to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 22 of King Jehoiakim, Do you think you are king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Meaning the Lord required justice and righteousness, but Jehoiakim had insisted on a luxurious cedared palace far exceeding the dwelling of his pious father Josiah. And because he could not afford such luxury, Jehoiakim had forced the citizens to labor on his palace without any pay. His father Josiah was content simply with food and drink, feeling that the maintenance of justice among the people was more important than having a palace. So Jeremiah denounced the king by announcing that Jehoiakim would be humiliated in his death in contrast with the honors heaped on his father. The prophet promised the king the burial of a donkey, and that's found in Jeremiah 22:19. It's amid this evil and injustice that Habakkuk brings this lament to God that starts in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The pronouncement which Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, How long, O Lord, have I called for help, and you do not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save? Why do you make, why do you make me see disaster and make me look at destitution? Yes, devastation and violence are before me. Strife exists, and the contention rises. Therefore, the law is ignored, and the justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out confused. Now what Habakkuk says in these four verses, he believes that God is letting the sin of Jehoiakim and the Jewish leaders go unpunished, and that therefore there's no justice. The best law in the world profits nothing if its statutes are not maintained. The wicked outnumber the righteous, surround them, and enforce their will on the people. The source of the wrongdoing in these verses are the leaders of Judah who press or oppress their own people. The Mosaic law had little impact on the hearts of these people, and they were not accomplishing its purpose. Instead, they were living according to their greedy, self-centered desires. Habakkuk believes that God's inactivity has caused injustice to become worse. 
The rich were using their power and money to get what they wanted. The rights of the poor were being trampled on. There was still a righteous remnant, but life was hard for them because they fell prey to the wicked and would not break God's laws to get ahead. Thus the prophet offers his complaint. It's indeed a strong one. He can find no justice among God's own people. Instead, a brutal perversion of God's law prevails throughout the land. The righteous people of the Lord suffer endless abuse. Prayers of the devout go unheard. How does the Lord explain this terrible circumstance and his own lack of response to the cry of the prophetic mediator? In short, the problem in Habakkuk's eyes is there is injustice here, and we are praying for you, Lord God, to do something about it, and you do nothing. And then we go to Habakkuk 1, verse 5, and we see what God's response is to Habakkuk. And it's not the response he's looking for. Look among the nations. Watch. Be horrified. Be frightened. Speechless. For I am accomplishing a work in your days. You would not believe it even if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, who are the Babylonians, that grim and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to take possession of the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrifying in fear. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are faster than leopards and quicker than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen charge along. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They gather captives like sand. They make fun of kings and dignitaries are an object of laughter to them. They laugh at every fortress. They heap up dirt and capture it. Then they fly like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. This is not obviously the answer that Habakkuk is looking for. Instead of answering his complaint about injustice and the violence of the leaders of Judah, God is going to judge Judah by sending the Babylonians to take possession of their dwelling places. The Babylonians are an arrogant people, not taking guidance from others or fearing military opposition. They seek their own honor, following their own law, wielding their mighty offensive forces. Their cavalry compares to, to beasts and birds known for their ferocity, veracity and speed. These two elements, pride and ferocity, are integral to the self-identity of these people since they worship their own power. Again in verse 5, look among the nations, watch, be horrified, be frightened, speechless, for I am accomplishing a work in your days. It's directed to God's covenant people. For no less than the whole of the nation shall be struck by this judgment. The covenant people of God are told to watch the storm arising, to observe it closely as it advances, and to wonder at the force of which it finally breaks on Israel itself. Judgment should not be, shouldn't be a surprise to God's covenant people because God had warned his people in Deuteronomy 28.15. But it shall come about that if you do not obey the Lord, your God, to be careful to follow all his commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, then all those curses will come upon you and overtake you. And all these, these curses are listed in Deuteronomy 28, 16 through 18. Now, if you remember in Josiah's day, when the book of the law was found, Josiah was concerned about those judgments that would come then at, in his time. And they went to the, uh, the prophetess Huldah, who told them that this judgment was coming, but not until Josiah was gathered to his fathers in peace. But now this judgment of God is that is to be accomplished in the days of the hearers of this prophecy. In verse 5, your days, this event shall occur, says the Lord, the word of the Lord. 
Swiftness is the execution of the judgment is characteristic of the Lord's activity through the ages. Although extremely patient and forbearing with rebellious sinners, the Lord is not slow to act once he has determined the iniquity of the people is full and at the time the judgment has arrived. So Habakkuk responds to God in another lament in uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, and we're just going to read the first two verses of it. Are you not from everlasting Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Lord, you, Lord, have appointed them to deliver judgment, and you, O rock, have destined them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look at evil, and you cannot look at harm favorably. Why do you favorably look at those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Essentially, Habakkuk is responding back to God, saying that the medicine is worse than the disease. The theological Habakkuk is, is, is facing is, how can a holy God, one that is pure in all things and completely separate from sin, can tolerate wrong and treachery as is practiced by the Babylonians as instruments of this punishment? While the sinful in Israel are wicked, in comparison, they are eclipsed by even the greater perversity of Babylon. Beside Babylon, sinful Israel can be called righteous, here a relative rather than an absolute term. They are so far removed from the standards expected of God that Habakkuk can only express wonder that God can even look at the Babylonians. After the second lament, Habakkuk waits for God's answer that comes in Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous one will live by his faith. So there's two, in this verse, you got a contrast between the first part and the second part. The first one is, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. And so this refers to the Babylonians. This condition of self-exaltation self and personal esteem brings it with certain consequences. Such a person cannot be upright in himself. His own pride condemns him. The possession of pride and self-reliance also excludes the possibility of finding a righteousness outside himself. For the proud person has presumed to find himself as the source of his own goodness. So by these words, Habakkuk, Scripture makes it plain that the proud cannot be upright. As a consequence, neither can they live. They must experience condemnation and judgment. To Habakkuk, it may seem that the boastful Babylonians shall continue to prosper, yet the fact is that their soul is not upright in them should be an indicator of their ultimate judgment. Whether in Judah or Babylon, those in rebellion against God would die. In contrast to the second half of the verse, the righteous, those who are right, with God will live by faith. Living by faith here has two aspects. Both of them are equally important. The first, it refers to an attitude of life lived on dependence of God, once faith is foundational to righteousness, as the Apostle Paul repeatedly makes clear. But it also involves faithfulness, calling for a recognition of God's trustworthiness, even when circumstances are challenging. All right, so I have two big ideas that I want to get across. The first one is, whenever people rely on something on this earth, whether it's intellectual achievement or wealth or military might or pride of birth and status or even the ability to cope and solve problems and master the complexities of modern life, wherever confidence is placed in human prowess and not in God, for that achievement of satisfying and secure manner of living, their true life cannot be had. Our hearts try to trick us that true life can be found there, but it can't. 
The second big idea is the righteous or the Christian are those courageous enough to accept God's word of promise in a world dominated by persecution. And the, to, to look for salvation in a world dominated by persecution requires faithfulness. And that object of the faith can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. As it is written in John 14, 6, John, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me. No one comes to, to the Father but through me. Because of Christ's atoning death work on the cross, we can be justified by faith, and we are declared not guilty. Now, world history might not indicate it, but Scripture does. We all know that God is leading this world to accomplish his purposes, and the righteous are there are also those whose lives correspond to God's leadership. To be righteous means to meet the demands of a relationship. Righteousness towards God involves a strong ethical dimension. It's to meet the demands of God toward him and toward others. It's essentially living out Matthew 22:37 through 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Someone tells us that the righteous person will stand before God in the day of judgment and will stand before God on his holy hill. The wicked will not. So how do we apply from what we just looked at? How do we apply that in our lives from a scripture that, um, that's 2,600 years old? And I have four application points, and we'll go through them quickly. The first application point is, God is just and merciful, even though his people may not always understand his ways. The key phrase, but the righteous will abide his faith, summarizes the path of God sets for his people, and it's quoted three times in the New Testament. There will be times in all our lives when God or our circumstances will not make any sense to us. These circumstances can appear out of nowhere and catch us unguarded. And when that happens, we can be completely overwhelmed and that can make us doubt that God really cares about us. Because in our feeble thinking, we think if he did care about us, we wouldn't have these troubles. We wouldn't hurt so bad. But this is a lie from the devil, so we don't want to believe that. I want to use an aviation example to help us understand to be, how to be ready when bad things happen. When you fly an airplane, you have emergency procedures that you execute when something goes wrong. And some of these emergency procedures are called boldface. And the reason why they call them boldface is because they're in bold print on the flight manual, and you memorize those so when something bad happens, you know what to do. For example, if my number one engine's on fire, the boldface is going to tell me to pull out the number one fuel shutoff valve, and if I do that, the fire should stop because there's no more fuel going to the engine. And as Christians, we have something similar to boldface to help us when we're experiencing an emergency or trouble, which is the scriptures. I've had many people tell me that memorizing scripture isn't their thing. But here is an easy one, and it's one that the Lord God gave to Habakkuk and God's people to survive the Babylonians, the just shall love by his faith. God's direction to them is also applicable to us since it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Living by faith in our God, in our living God, saves us in justification and keeps us in our sanctification. 
The second application point is wickedness will eventually be punished. There is still time to repent, and the righteous will ultimately see God's just, justice. One aspect of God's righteousness is that he demands righteousness of his rational creatures. God would not be righteous to require less. Another aspect of God's righteousness is that he must punish all unrighteousness. It would not be righteous to let the unrighteous go unpunished. Scripture insists that there is a function of God's justice to requite every wrong. Thus, in the end, God will judge the wicked is a matter of plain scriptural declaration. In Acts 17.31, it says, Because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. The third application point is God uses some wicked nations to punish other wicked nations, but ultimately God will judge all nations. God controls the political scene. Jesus is ruling and reigning. In Habakkuk, God uses Babylon to punish Israel. In Isaiah, Isaiah, in Isaiah 12, Isaiah prophesies against Babylon as they are conquered by the Mede-Persian Empire. Daniel 2.21 says, It's he, the Lord, who changes the times and the periods. He removes kings and appoints kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to the people of understanding. And the uh, final application, point number four, believers should honestly acknowledge before God the various difficulties they face. We can tell, how God, we can tell God how we feel. We can tell him our disappointments and concerns. Habakkuk asked God why he didn't answer his prayer and correct injustice, and God didn't respond with, you can't talk to me this way. But did tell Habakkuk what was about to take place, and Habakkuk's prayers were actually laments. And a lament is an honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. One third of all the Psalms are laments, and we actually have a whole book called Lamentations, which is all about lament. So we have plenty of instruction uh, uh, that model to us how we can tell God our sorrows and our griefs. Now, we're in an age that the age that we currently live in, it's pretty obvious that we are living in a world of unprecedented danger. We just came out of a pandemic where 1.1 million Americans died. We have a generation of young people struggling with who they are. Our country is over $30 trillion in debt and deeply polarized in the way that our country should be led in the future. In spite of all this and all the danger that's there, we have this instruction from God who's give, who, who he gave to Habakkuk, which is now given to us, which is as true and prophetic now as it was 2,600 years ago, that the righteous person should live by his faith. Please pray with me. Father, there's so many times in this world, in our lives, that things happen and we just don't understand it. And even though we can read in our Bible and it says all things work together for the good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, we can believe that. We can believe that by faith. But what we don't see is how all those things work together. And sometimes we can have trouble, you know, just pondering what you're doing in our lives. But the one thing that we know above all else, that when difficulties come, you know, if we're in the emergency room with our spouse and something bad's happening, if um, uh, we get some other bad news about something else, that we know that we can trust you for what's going to happen, that what we need to do is we need to live by our faith 
And we need to live in the faith of our, uh, the Son of God who gave his life up for us that we could have eternal life and be justified. So, Father, we thank you that you do justify us and that you do keep us through sanctification. But, Lord, we also pray that as we struggle with all these things that happen in the world today, that you would remind us and help us to live by our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.